as we call it. Uh, this is uh, a way for us to get warmed up and to also discuss some of our, in shorthand, some of our favorite either true crimes or something related to true crime that we'll, we are able to speak to without too much research off the cuff, let you guys get to know us a little better and share our thoughts and feelings. So uh, these are those candid moments for us to share. I am here with my co-host, Brittany Sherman. Hey, Sonia. So... Uh... Things are a little bit different right now. We are recording separately. We are doing this over Skype together uh, because the new guidelines that came out with protection for COVID-19 is that even one-on-one -on -one visits are discouraged outside of your own household. So we are doing this, uh, we're, we're flying solo per se, and... Um, it's, it should be interesting. It's going to be a unique experience. We'll see how it goes. So much of what we do is playing off one another. So we'll, we'll see how, this, how we, we make this happen. But uh, before we do get in, uh, I want to offer uh, our sincerest condolences. A couple hours before we started recording, we received news that Keith Taylor, one of the co-hosts from real aka truth podcast uh, which is also part of the pod all the time podcast network passed away tragically from the coronavirus uh, i have told those guys that i almost consider them like our brother show they do such an awesome job helping us promote and get the word out and they are like our number one fans so we were extremely saddened, um, and really, I was very, very heartbroken to hear about that. Uh, so it's um, you know, very sad. This is very real. Please take it seriously. Please uh, wash your hands, social distance, don't touch your face. If you think you might be sick, please stay away from other people. Um, this is, it's a, it's a very uncertain and scary time right now, and this just goes to show it can affect anybody. All right, Sonia, so what are we talking about for our top three today? Uh, today, we are talking about our top three unsolved murders. And as Brittany and I were talking about this, we talked a little bit about, you know, should we include the crimes that others may think have been solved and others may have been tried and even convicted at times uh, of, you know, certain crimes that we're interested in. And um, I think that we like to include those because for some of us, you know, there are certain crimes out there um, that live in infamy that, um, you know, we have opinions about whether the person who was actually tried and convicted was a, um, you know, actually the perpetrator of all of the crimes. Now, I think it's fairly easy in some of the ones that are on my list to show that they were probably 
um, you know, convicted of some of the crimes, but certainly not all of them. So that's where my problems lie with some of these issues. So let's let's dive right in our top three unsolved murder cases. All right. Well, Sonia, I'm going to ask you to go first because I think you have some uh, stronger opinions, it sounds like, than I do. Mine, I think, are more truly along the lines of unsolved and one is even more maybe like a conspiracy theory that i'll talk about that i have a personal connection to but why don't you kick us off with your number three all right so uh in true fashion Brittany, as we always do uh occasionally we will include a 3a and a 3b which you made famous (laughs) i did i started that trend and now you've really taken it over well you know it's tough because when i started thinking about this First, when I, you know, we chatted and I, I suggested it, I thought, you know, I don't know if I have three. And then, of course, I started mm-hmm. going through my list and I have more than three. And I felt like some of them were important to include, but, you know, of course you can't include all of them. So I, um, I'll i rattle up a couple of cases in the end, you know, and add to my list, but not really speak out about them. Um, of course, as with most people... I, my 3B is going to be the Zodiac Killer. And that was, um, you know, multiple cases in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, he murdered victims in a variety of locations in Northern California. And, uh, I, you know, it, he in, antagonized the police. Uh, he was begging to be caught, but clearly keeping himself from, um, you know, the the scrutiny of the police, um, at least to the extent that they could find this person. So, and then all of a sudden it stopped. Um, so I think it's really interesting and certainly for the victims, uh, and the victims families, it's an important one because it really showed that a person of a certain intelligence could really, um, you know, get away with crimes at the, at the, this level. And there were, there were a, a large number of them. Unfortunately, we are already experiencing our uh, struggles of not being in the same room because uh, if you were in the same room with me when you just said that, even though we're looking at each other on Skype, you would have seen I pounded my hand against the table because that was my number three. And I know, like you said, it's like every on everyone's list, but I was hoping to try and get one up over on you. But I'll talk about I'll talk about my perspective when it comes over to my turn. Exactly. You can take that as your number three because that was my three B. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted to give it credit. For sure. And it's so important. You know, people I mean, I, I want to know. I want to yeah, know why. Definitely. My three A that I feel like is my real my real three is actually the Atlanta child murders. And that happened, those happened between 1979 and 1981 in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, of course, all roads lead back to Mindhunter, which is where I first started, um, you know, becoming more interested in this case. Now, in July of 1979, I would have been a child, and I was aware that these situations were happening, these crimes were happening. It was a really big deal because these were young boys and adolescents who, you know, these murders were occurring in a very specific, in a really consolidated area of Atlanta. And it was a really important case for a variety of reasons. Now, there were 28 children, adolescents, and adults that were killed. That's Um, insane. Well, there were so many things insane about it. You know, I think that there were a lot of um, 
you know, I think the police and the way that they handled things was challenging. Not it, when it wasn't necessarily their fault, but there was a lot of political stigma around this case or these cases um, per se, because there was a lot of pressure for them to figure out who was doing it. But to be honest with the world and Atlanta. And so, you know, it was, like I said, important, but it was tough. The political waters were, waters were challenging because they wanted to, you know, not shine Atlanta in a poor light. So it was, and, you know, 79, I mean, I hate to probably point out the obvious here, but this was not that long after, um, you know, civil rights movements and things like that. And I know it doesn't seem like that long ago now, but it was an important time, you know, that, in the South, segregation, you know, was still, you know, applied in some ways, and it was just really um, challenging and hard. And so if the police or the FBI would have come out and said, oh, well, the profile shows that this is a black man who's committing these crimes, then it politically swayed in one direction. And if you, you know, the profiler would have said, you know, if, and profilers were new to the time, so, you know, right. they weren't saying a whole lot. But, um, you know, if a white man did this to these these young men, um, you know, then, of course, the political swing was in the opposite direction. So it was really, really hard to understand how to make sense of it and um, not upset others and to get the kind of attention that it needed. So it was really tough. In Minehunter, I thought they did a great job of conveying that message and really discussed and showed how... Um, you know, the families and the mothers in, in particular were so adamant that these these cases were going to get solved. They, they needed to get solved. And um, the sad part, in my opinion, is, of course, Wayne Williams was found guilty of a couple of the crimes. And the crimes that he was found guilty of, mm -hmm. the murders, these were, the, they weren't children. They were actually adolescents and a little older. So it was a real shame. So that means if 28 people were murdered and he was found guilty of two of them, what happened with the rest? And to me, it just, it, I couldn't connect the dots between Wayne Williams and those other 26 boys. And I don't think the police could either. And I guess that they assumed that it was good enough and he was going to be in jail forever. Um, but at the same time, you know, don't we want to know? Don't we want to know why? And don't we want to yeah, know sure. if he's not the person? You know, so I get why there's, you know, the different prosecutors and things like that look at these cases and really try to understand what they can actually um, prosecute effectively. And in this case, I guess they felt like they couldn't for the others, but it would sure be nice for the victims to know. And I actually don't think that Wayne Williams did all of those crimes, in my opinion. Sure, I, I, I think I agree with you. And I have to be honest, I didn't even know about this until I watched My Hunter season two on Netflix. But it, I actually, I, I felt bad because it is such a big deal, and I, I couldn't believe how big of a deal it was, and I had never heard about it before. So it was, yes, I agree. Um, it doesn't seem like he is responsible for all of those. Um, he certainly had some unique personality characteristics and goaded the police, but, uh, I mean, we're not psychiatrists, but it just seemed like his characteristics and M.O., didn't line up for what was really what was exhibited in the victims I thought yeah I um you are right and honestly even just statistically you know um I just don't think it just didn't make sense to me I just don't think he was the guy I think that he did something but I'm not sure what sure. And he was such a weird right. dude like when they were interviewing him and um 
there's a lot of video out there. I, I mean, sure, Mindhunter did a great job of referring to some original footage, but, you know, Wayne Williams was a, a strange guy. I thought that, you know, he did some things, in my opinion, that if I was him, I would have probably not done or said and, and yeah, kept exactly. myself out of trouble. You know, he he almost played into it like he was egging them on and then rightly so was punished for those actions. Right. I agree. So that is my official number three, Brittany. So okay. there you go. All right. Well, as I said, my number three is the Zodiac Killer. Um, and I will be honest, the most that I know and when I was first introduced to the Zodiac Killer was from the David Fincher movie because I pretty much do love all things David Fincher. He is one of my favorite living directors. Uh, but this case, I think, is really fascinating and it's still unsolved Uh quick little rundown essentially the zodiac killer was responsible for five confirmed dead and two injured and up to 28 total dead but unconfirmed and unattributed to the zodiac killer and this took place in uh i think the late 60s in napa county near san francisco or and partially in san francisco uh from December 68 to October 69. So it was actually a very, a very condensed time period where this killer, I was about to say this man, but we can't say that with certainty, uh, committed his crimes. And if you account for everyone that he is suspected of harming or injuring, it's well into the 30s, that's extremely prolific for an 11-month period. That's a, that is a ton. And to what you were saying before, he goaded the police. He, he pushed at them and needled them and taunted them with trying to send them in different directions, but also trying to lead them and drop very subtle hints and clues. And to me, that's the part that is the most fascinating. His crimes are horrific, but the way that he try to manipulate the investigation uh, and whether or not he was truthful or dishonest about the letters that he sent. Uh, he would use like newspaper and magazine clippings and take letters and words and put them together to write full letters uh, with details of the killings and about who he was, whether or not they were truthful or not, unsure. Uh, and it was, it was huge. This is right around the time and same area as Ed Kemper. Um, this is around the same time as Charles Manson, though Charles Manson was Southern California, and this is more Northern California. Uh, it was a very uneasy, really nervous time in California and Northern California, particularly in the late sixties, there's a lot going on. seems like there were a lot of serial killers. Uh, I, I obviously I, I can't say why, but it just, it seemed like there was something maybe about the culture, uh, that was causing or leading to this, uh, you know, this, unfortunately what seemed like a trend, uh, obviously because we're talking about it here. We don't know who he is. There is strong suggestion that it was uh, a man named Arthur Lee Allen, 
And there was evidence to support that, but not enough evidence to ever make an arrest. So that case, 50 years later, still remains cold. Um, and I hope that we decide to tackle it at some point because I want to learn more about his manipulative ways and his interactions with police and the investigation. I, I agree. I mean, the, the Zodiac uh, killer and murders is perplexing, you know. To me, again, it's the abrupt stop that was really strange. Um, yeah. Most of the time, you know, you will find escalation and it won't stop until someone stops the person who's committing the acts. So either, and I don't know if he had the wherewithal or she or whoever had the wherewithal to stop themselves. So either they went to jail, maybe they were killed, maybe something, they had a close call and they were afraid they were going to get caught. Who knows? But they, um, it didn't seem to progress. All right, Sonia, number two. Number two for me is going to be Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman. I um, followed that case, you know, as most of the United States did. In June of 1994, uh, Nicole and Ron were found murdered in her Brentwood townhome uh, and down the street from a restaurant that Rod Goldman worked at. And uh, he was found on the outside in the courtyard. And she was, I think they were both found in, on the, she, she was found on the sidewalk. He was found in the, in the courtyard. They were right. both outside. Um, yeah. You know, it was apparent that something had gone wrong here and that they had been murdered by one or more people. And as we quickly saw, um, you know, the suspect that most were looking at were, would be essentially O.J. Simpson. And there were a couple of reason, reasons for this. O.J. Simpson was previously married to Nicole Simpson, Nicole Brown Simpson, and he had history of domestic violence with her on numerous occasions and well-documented. So, um, you know, it, it appeared to many people who knew him and Nicole that, you know, they first thought that this was probably something that he had perpetrated or he had helped in doing so. And, you know, O.J. had a lot of fans. I mean, he was very um, well-known in L.A. Brentwood is a very affluent area. He didn't live too far from that area. I think he lived in Bel Air, which is very expensive. He lived in Brentwood. Did he live in Brentwood? So he lived pretty close. Yeah, he, li- he lived in Brentwood, yeah. So, you know, he he was, again, well thought of. You know, here's a guy who was a naked gun. He was a, a very well-known football player. And, um, you know, again, challenges with domestic uh, violence and abuse, well-documented. I, um, you know, we saw the trial unfold in front of us over, over many, many, many months. And I was very interested in that trial because it was the first time that I had really seen a trial, um, you know, shared like that it, with the public and every waking moment we were watching it unfold. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about it was the array of attorneys that O.J. Simpson had and, um, you know, of course, mo- the most important person in of that, you know, group to me would have been F. Lee Bailey. And others would say, oh, he wasn't the, the ringleader of the attorneys. But he orchestrated things that I think ultimately were able to get O.J. Um, to be found innocent. Um, he was acquitted of the crime. and um, But he was found liable in the civil suits for both deaths, deaths which is apparently where he had challenges making 
um, you know, restitution to the Goldman family, and I'm assuming the Nicole Brown Simpson family as well. And um, he then continued down his criminal road, and um, what, he tried to steal a football back in Vegas at gunpoint and got in more trouble, and, mm-hmm. you know, OJ just fell off the rails. I think it was something that he had oh. owned. He had maybe pawned. Or someone had stolen from him per se, and he went to get it back. And he went yeah. he he went to get it back in the most illegal of ways because he uh-huh. goes into a Vegas a Vegas hotel room with a gun or two, um, with a, a record as he had, you know. And if I was OJ and I got off on, let's just say, as OJ said in a book that he wrote, which I think was called "If I Did It, This Is How yep. I Would Have Done It." Yeah, I think it was called If I Did It. Um, yeah. So he obviously had thoughts um, and something in his mind that led him, you know, to be able to have this conversation in great detail. And I, if I'm not mistaken, that book, um, a lot of the royalties not only went back to him, but to Epley Bailey, right? I mean, I think that the attorneys got a piece of the OJ action. Well, I think I think part of that was the reason that they got that, though, is not so much that they got the royalties. It's that... He owed them millions and millions and millions of dollars that he had to pay them back. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and if I'm not mistaken, this was a similar case to the Albert DeSalvo case, the Boston Strangler case, where he owed Effley Bailey money. He wanted to make uh-huh. sure his family was taken care of. You know, here we are again with Effley Bailey. Yeah, Bailey, I know. Very well known and yes, very well respected and is known as an attorney who will likely win a case that he um, is on. You know, I mean, right. people are scared of him. He's an incredible arguer. But, you know, I um, just because you're an incredible arguer doesn't mean that, you know, you are an upstanding citizen. I think that some of his tactics and some of his behaviors, um, you know, lead me to believe that he has sure. ulterior motives, not in the best interest of his um, uh, of the people who he's representing. His clients. I yeah, mean, I don't Albert DeSalvo, he was kind of like, hey, he's guilty. I mean, he was working against him. It was weird. Right. So that's my thoughts on uh, that. You know, there was, I could go on and on and on and on about that, but I I would love to know the answer to the question Who killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? I would like to know that answer. So even though it is overwhelmingly, genuinely accepted that we know who did it, because it is officially unknown, you, uh, you essentially want further investigation to find out the real truth. Well, not only that, I mean, widely accepted or not, if you can't prove it, then, you know, so be it. What doesn't make sense is even if I can agree that O.J. Simpson murdered these two people, I do not think he did it alone. Therefore, and there are I a agree. lot of... There's a lot of evidence to show that it would be really challenging for him or anyone to do commit these crimes alone. He would have had to overpower and restrain at the same times. Um, and then, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was a uh, the witness who had came forward and said that she had seen OJ and someone else, you know, coming over to a townhouse earlier, and her her testimony could not be used because I think she talked to the press before she talked to the police. And, um, but there was some, you know, evidence there that was not allowed because of these challenges. So I, uh, I want to know who, what I really want to know to your point, Brittany, I want to know who else killed them or who participated okay. in those murders. That's what I really want to know. 
I thought I knew all there was to know, and then I watched the FX series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. If you haven't watched it yet, I highly recommend it. It's entertaining and extremely informative, and from what I hear, pretty accurate. So I would recommend that. In these times of stay-at-home quarantine, throw that on. It's a good watch. It is a good watch. I got a lot of, um, you know... (laughs) I got a lot of impressions about OJ that I didn't have before. I am, um, you know, a lot of, if you were watching the trials, you were seeing him in court. So you, he didn't yep. really have a lot of personality and I didn't know yep. OJ that well. So watching, you know, that, that show that you're, you're speaking of that it, it, it was giving me an impression that I didn't have before. Did it change my mind on what happened? Not really. Did it get me there in a different way? Yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree with that completely. All right. So who is your number two? My number two is Matrice Richardson. And I remember hearing about this not all that long ago for the first time. And I cannot remember where I heard it. I don't remember if I heard it on another, another podcast, if I watched a true crime show, something. But there was apparently a recent episode of Dateline or 2020 that discussed this. And uh, as seems to be a popular concept lately, someone suggested, hey, you know what you should look into? And proceeded to tell me about this. And I said, oh, that sounds so familiar. And I remember hearing about it just recently. So Matrice Richardson was a 24-year-old woman uh, that in August of 2010 went to dinner for, uh, with some friends in Malibu. And she was a recent graduate uh, graduate of Cal State Fullerton. And she was at dinner acting very strange or very out of character, erratic. Uh, she wasn't one to drink heavily. She wasn't one that was into drugs. So it was very bizarre. And the for anyone that's familiar with Malibu... Uh, This was a restaurant that is right on the Pacific Coast Highway. Those are pretty high-end, very well-to-do restaurants. What's the restaurant called? The restaurant is... Oh, I just had it here. Where is it? I mean, there's not that many on that. uh, The restaurant that they were at was called Jeffrey's on Malibu on the PCH. And and, uh, so if you're at all familiar... Those are pretty high-end. They uh, don't put up with a lot of flack. And so because she was so out of control and she couldn't be contained, uh, the police were called. And she was taken into custody by the Calabasas police, which Calabasas, I feel like, gets not a bad rap, but a lot of things happen in Calabasas. Yes, they do. It's a, yeah, it is a strange, it's strange how many weird events seem to happen. The most recent being the helicopter crash of Kobe Bryant and everyone that was there. But that's, these two are far from the only two strange incidences that happened in Calabasas. But she was essentially arrested. Uh, She was going to be held. It was around midnight. Um. Pretty much she was just going to be, what's the word, not registered, but what's the word I'm looking for? Essentially intake 
taken in, whatever. And she called her mom, and she told her mom what was happening. Uh, this was, again, very out of character. She was a, a girl that doesn't get into much trouble. Um, and her mom talked to the police and said, before you release her, call me and I'll come pick her up. And the police pretty much said they were going to book her and release her, so they'd be calling her shortly. Book, that's the word I was looking for. And around 5 a.m., Matrice's mom still hadn't heard from the police. So she called the police back and said, uh, what's the status? When can I come pick up my daughter? And the police said she left here around 2 a.m. Now, Calabasas is a very well-to-do area, and that area and a, really a large part of Malibu are in a forest mountainous region. Um, it's not just this beautiful coastal, even though it is, a city that you think of. There's a lot of just empty wooded land. Since her mother was supposed to come pick her up and she didn't, um, there was a search party that was sent out trying to find her because Matrice didn't make it home when she supposedly left at 2 o'clock. She was found a few days later. Uh, a, uh, excuse me, not a few days later. She was found nearly a year later, and uh, her remains were found in the woods. And uh, obviously this was unknown. What happened? There are suggestions that maybe animals got to her. There are suggestions that maybe she was on something, even though that was out of her character, and passed out or overdosed. Um, or the common theory is that, of course, something terrible happened to her. Maybe she was abducted and murdered, but her remains were... Uh, like I said, it was almost a year later, so her remains were so limited that it was hard to say what actually happened. Um, so it's it's a really f interesting case. Um, I can't believe it's unsolved, but I would I'd love to see where more where there where there's more information. I don't know if there is a lot of information out there, but it's really interesting, and that's something that's pretty close to home for us. She was pretty young too, right? She was twenty four. Yeah, she was a young girl. I mean. You know, I get the police, you know, well, sort of, I don't really, maybe not, you know, I mean, how many times did the police arrest someone for acting out and, you know, their parents call? I mean, if they're adults, I get that the police doesn't really have a responsibility to communicate with them, but sure, exactly. if, if the mom had called and, you know, tried to help, it would have, to me, behooved the police to just reach out to her and let her know rather For than sure. having this person wander around. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they just let her out the door and she wandered. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, right. Crazy. Wow. Yes. Well, that, that was a, uh, yeah, I, I bet you would like to know. I would like to know that one as well. I mean, the bummer is, is that we probably won't ever know because there was so no. little remaining of her. Right. Right. Yeah. Sad. So we are moving on to my number one. Number one. And my number one is the drowning of Natalie Wood. Now, I think that we can all agree, based on the coroner's evidence, that Natalie Wood drowned. There is no question about that. Um, they have her body. She had water in her lungs, so on and so on. Um, and she was found floating face down in the water, so, you know, obvious. 
What I am confused about is, and there have been all kinds of different um, theories, and then there was recently a documentary that I watched, um, and I thought it was, I'll have to look it up. I thought it, I, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, there's all these conversations about from her sisters about how she was deathly afraid of the water, or water and there's no way she would be getting in. Um, you know, she was out on a boat, essentially, with her, her husband at the time, Robert Wagner, and Christopher Walken, who was her co-star in a movie that she was in. She was an incredibly famous actress, a very well-known. She was 43 at her death, and she died on November 29th, 1981, off of Catalina, off of their boat. Um, they were in the marina. I think they were celebrating Thanksgiving, and um, somehow she yep. thought it was a good idea that Christopher Walken, her co-star, would join her and her husband on their yacht. And he did. And there's a lot of speculation about what happened on that boat, um, you know, it runs the gamut. I'm not even going to repeat some of it because it's not worth repeating. What I, and also in the documentary that I watched, I thought it was interesting because, um, you know, they talk about why she wouldn't be out dressed as she was and she, and did she get in a dinghy or did she fall or was she drunk? And I think, I mean, they should have been able to test her blood alcohol and seen whether she was had alcohol in her system or not. I'm not sure what the um, the answer to that question is. But what, and there's also, I think, a captain who had come forward and said that there was, um, you know, you could hear voices out over the marina, which would have been at that time of the night. I mean, it was, the, it was late at night into the morning, so it probably wasn't very, uh, there wasn't a lot happening out there. So you could probably hear everything. And there's some conversation about someone hearing um, Natalie Wood crying for help and mm -hmm. Robert Wagner yelling at her and telling her that she's just going to stay put and she's getting what she deserves or, you know, sort of not responding in a way that was helpful to her, which may have ultimately led to her not being helped and then drowning in the boat. It, it's a, it was a dinghy or a small little like blow up dinghy thing. And she had on her nightgown or some, you know, loungewear or whatever. And she had a down jacket on. So obviously she was, she, she was cold. She put that jacket on herself. Don't know why she was walking around the boat at that time of night with a down jacket on, but she was obviously out there doing something. And then, you know, the speculation is, did she get pushed or did she fall into the dinghy drunk? And then when she did that, how long was she out there and did she connect with anyone or, or did anyone hear her and just not help her or did she just simply fall out there by herself and drown? So a lot of speculation. What I, uh, and, and I, from what I understand, they listed her, her cause of death as drowning in other undetermined factors in 2012. And then in 2018, it was again brought up that Robert Wagner was named as a person of interest in the ongoing investigation of her death. So they reopened it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that I think was really interesting. I, I don't know if Robert Wagner's still alive or not. I assume he is, but you know, he is. It, would, it would be interesting for him to share information. I don't know if he has any or not. I mean, maybe it's a, a deathbed conversation or who knows. What I thought was really interesting, and, and maybe there wasn't any information to get, but I don't recall ever hearing anything from Christopher Walken about what he saw happening on the boat that night. So the piece of it that I, there are three people on that boat, one of them's dead and the other one says that nothing happened or he didn't see anyone. So, you know, I'd be curious to hear from Christopher Walken what his, 
what his, um, you know, ideas about that are. I don't know if he was friends with, I, it sounds to me like he and Natalie Wood were friends. I don't know if he was close with Robert Wagner um, at all or not. And I don't know. I think it's just a weird, like, I don't know. It's just a weird thing. Those three on the yeah. boat on for Thanksgiving alone. It's kind of strange. It is. It's super weird. Yeah. Like, what were they going to do? Play yep. checkers? And, I mean, it's a, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know. I It's perplexing to me. And, um, you know, there's a lot, again, of speculation. So, I know that she was a, I thought she was a really beautiful woman. I thought she was a she great was. actress. She had yes. a lot to uh, give, and um, you know it was disappointing to to not know what had happened to her and what caused her death. Okay, so my number one is maybe cheating a little bit uh, because it's not even sure if it's real or maybe it's a bunch of coincidences. But it's it's kind of a conspiracy theory, but it's maybe accurate and i do have a personal note about this and that is the smiley face murders oh what's and that i don't even know what that is so the smiley face murders are um a it's a theory and uh that from the early 1990s until the uh early 2010s so over the course of about 20 years college-aged men disappeared and died under strange circumstances in the united states it, or sorry in, sorry in the in the, in the midwest in the midwest the united states in the like multiple states in multiple states in the midwest yes huh, all right and the seeming loose connection is that at several of those sites or near where their bodies were found a smiley face was graffitied on a stone or a wall or something so that's where the smiley face murder comes from so it is just a theory how, how many are how many deaths are we talking here um good question think we're talking let's see over 20 i want to say oh my god that's a lot yeah it is it's a lot it's a <laughs> lot yeah for sure um and and you know maybe maybe it's all a hoax maybe it's one person there is a thought that maybe it's a gang of people or multiple people that are copycats so it's um and it's also you know there's question of were some of them murderers? Some of them, a lot of them are, it's generally accepted that they died due to other circumstances, but it's questioned whether or not it was a murder. And so my personal attachment to this is a, uh, a college student in, at UW, University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, named Luke Homan who I went to high school with, died in the fall of 2006 in downtown La Crosse after going out drinking with somebody's. Uh, he, his official cause of death is uh, intoxication, uh, alcohol poisoning, essentially, uh, and secondary cause of death is cold water drowning. In 
lacrosse is like central wisconsin in the fall central wisconsin it can get really cold so cold water drowning we're talking temperatures water temperatures probably like in the 40s and the theory is essentially he stumbled fell over was heavily intoxicated. If he wasn't dead already from alcohol poisoning, he would have drowned in the water. And I'm sure there was, there had to have been some water in his lungs for that to be like a secondary. Uh, and now how this is attached is, uh, this was, I think the second within a year, if not more than that, where a student from lacrosse died under these circumstances. It was very similar, eerily strange how similar these were. Uh, officially, like I said, his death was called, uh, you know, called, I don't even know what you could call it. It wasn't natural, it wasn't an accident, but there was no foul play. Uh, there was, uh, one of his friends was charged with obstruction of justice. He said that Luke got into a fight at a bar and a couple guys uh, left with him and then came back without him, but then gave a conflicting report. And he was charged with obstruction of justice for not being honest and truthful and giving several different stories to the police officers. Though it was definitely determined that he was, this guy was not in any way involved with Luke's death, but he was there that night. Um, so... In addition to just going to high school with Luke, um, he, wa he was, I think, two years older than I was. And there were, um, there were like two years of high school that I spent like more than half the year on crutches. And we were in uh, like an extracurricular group together. And we met twice a week. And every time we met... He, uh, oh, and by the way, I should mention, he was, uh, he was on the football team, and he was the sharpshooter for the basketball team. He was a killer beyond the three-point arc, and I was not a cool kid in high school, um, <laughs> but, um, but he, um, twice a week, when we had our meetings early in the morning, he always carried my backpack to my class for me Aww, so sweet. i know it was it was really sweet they were um it was him and there was one other guy and they alternated carrying my backpack to class so um you know we never hung out i wouldn't say that i was friends with him but i did have that personal touch and he really he, he helped me a lot when i was struggling and um i'm appreciative for that and i hope for his sake and his family's sake there is you know it's done, but there are a lot of questions surrounding it, and this smiley face killer theory is at least a fascinating one that I feel like should be investigated. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, with that many people, you know, found murdered, I'm surprised. But, you know, it's tough when you have multiple states, um, you know, and jurisdictions. Exactly. It's challenging, you know, to, um, you know, for the police to understand how to work together, if at all. Yes, exactly, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's very tough. So um, yeah, well, that I think will wrap up our top three episode. Uh, it is our leading for. I'm not even gonna say, but an upcoming episode that is very timely right now. Yeah, um, that we're excited to talk about. Yes, so, we are. 
thank you for listening. Um, we are uh, glad to, of course, have you join us, Scarlettos, in this difficult time. We hope that we are able to provide some uh, respite and entertainment to help you get through your day and take your mind off the events of the world right now. Absolutely. And, you know, please reach out to us and let us know your thoughts. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You know, we are here, um, you know, to provide some levity, I hope, even um, as we're discussing things that are obviously serious and there are victims involved and with all respect to all of the victims and the families, you know, it's um, obviously true crime is a really up and coming or honestly up and coming now. It's very, very popular. So if this gets you through, um, you know, feel free to reach out to us and let us know how you feel. Let us know how you're doing. Hey, Scarlettos, before we wrap this up, we want to give a shout out to the Pod All the Time podcast network that we, Scarlet TCP, are proud members of. Other members of the Pod All the Time podcast network are Creative Intuitive, Another Digital Citizen, History of a Haunting, Round and Round the Podcast, Real AKA Truth Podcast, Ruck Up Podcast, Random Unnamed Podcast, Suburban Folk, Three Peas in a Podcast, Raw Sex Podcast, I Think We're Doing It Podcast. So if you like what you're hearing from Scarlet TCP, check out these other shows, the members of the Pod All the Time Podcast Network. All right, Scarlettos, thanks for tuning in. Stay well. Stay well, Scarlettos. Keep killing it. Keep killing it.